The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Followers of Satin edition. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2016. On today's show, O.J. Made in America is a new mega-documentary on ESPN about the so-called trial of the century. It's being hailed as a nonfiction masterpiece we discuss. And how to dress in an age of man jewelry, table service, and David Beckham wearing a sarong. Simon Doonan joins us to discuss his slate feature, Getting It Right, a field guide to the five tribes of modern men's fashion. And finally, while on book leave, the ever-perverse Dana Stevens continued to listen to this podcast. She (laughs) took notes, and she apparently has a lot on her mind. We query her, she queries us, and not nowhere was never reached. I don't know. We get somewhere, I hope. Uh, Dana Stevens, of course, is the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. And Julia Turner is uh, Slate's editor. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Um, Surely we have some uh, early summer business to attend to before we dig into these topics. We do, indeed. I have three announcements. Number one. Actually, and and number one has a part A and part B. Number one, there are many exciting live shows coming up. The first is actually a live show for the Political Gab Fest on July 13th in Washington, D.C. That'll be right before the conventions. They will assess the state of the race. It should be a a knockdown, drag out, fantastic show. And then we, of course, are going to Edith Wharton's house, The Mount, in the Berkshires on August 4th. You can get tickets to both of those events at slate.com slash live. And, of course, if you're a Slate Plus member, you can get discounted tickets. Second, Slate Plus. For our bonus segment today, we are going to answer a listener question. What is the most pleasurable summer reading experience you've ever had? And third, I wanted to let listeners know that we have an awesome new podcast exclusively for Slate Plus members. Dear Prudence herself, Mallory Ortberg, is doing a podcast just for Slate Plus members. The pilot episode went up on Slate Plus last week. There's another one airing this week. Uh, And then going forward, there will be little mini episodes available to everyone on iTunes. But the full show and ad-free experience will be available only for Slate Plus members. You can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus to become a member. Listen to that. Listen to our bonus segment today and support Slate and the journalism that we do. And Steve, I know I've already asked for your patience through 1A and B, 2 and 3, but I just realized I have a CODA announcement. (laughs) Uh, We're moving to Roman numerals. Yeah. This is like a lowercase i. I I'm hiring an assistant. Uh, Jake Jake Weisberg, (laughs) who's the chairman of the Slate group. Keith Hernandez, our wonderful president, and I uh, all have an executive assistant in the New York office, and we had a wonderful one who just left, and so we're looking for a new one. So if you'd like to come work with me and the other heads of Slate and figure out how we make this place, it's a great job. And it's very not Devil Wears Prada, right? You don't throw your fur coat at the person when they walk in. It is very not Devil's Wear Prada. There are no lectures about the origins of Cerulean Blue and not very many lectures generally. It's a really fun team. So we'll post a link to that job listing on our show page as well. All right. Now we can start the show. Excellent. All right. Moving on. A five-part, seven-and-a-half-hour documentary about the OJ trial feels redundant in every way. Needless, in fact, the trial dominated cable TV at the time. Of course, it's recently been dramatized in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. And yet the ESPN documentary O.J. Simpson, Made in America, is being greeted as a triumph, as a work of nonfiction more in the spirit of Robert Caro or the Executioner's Song than of uh, in the spirit of tabloid melodrama. It's uh, not a huge surprise. It's part of the terrific 30 for 30 series on ESPN. It's directed by Ezra Edelman. It is thick 
and deep. It is an exploration of race, sports, celebrity, and many other things. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. And let me just set this up a little bit before we play it. So we're hearing here about a, a proposed boycott of the 1968 Olympics by black athletes and about OJ's sort of recruitment for that cause and then reluctance to participate. The whole idea behind the Olympic Project for Human Rights was to escalate the relationship between elite athletes and the civil rights movement. Let me say that I absolutely support this boycott. I would also like to commend the outstanding athletes who have the courage to make it clear that they will not participate unless something is done about these terrible evils and injustices. O.J. was approached because he was the biggest name in collegiate athletics at that time. He was also a world record holding track star. That's O.J. Simpson. So here we got two for one. When I asked him, I said, we're trying to get black athletes to understand they have a role in the current civil rights movement. His response was, I'm not black, I'm O.J. What they think is right, I guess they must follow their beliefs. Well, uh, right now I don't want to be involved in it because I'm not in track. You know, I'm running track, but when when it comes to Olympic time, I'll be in football, so I have no comment on the matter. Dana, I imagine you've probably watched as little football and tabloid TV as anyone in America. I'm curious, did this documentary captivate you? And if so, why? Oh, my God, did it captivate me? The bags (laughs) under my eyes should be the answer to that question. Because as I think you all know, because I was frantically emailing you about this last night, I had some trouble getting online to see the screener of this that we were sent to to start watching this seven-hour documentary. By the time I finally figured it out and got started watching it, it was probably a quarter to midnight. And... Just suffice it to say that if we had chickens and roosters in my backyard, they would have been a crow in by the time I finished <laughs> watching this. I didn't still get to the end of it. I think I watched the first five hours or something. But, oh, my God, this documentary is so, as you say, Steve, just so rich and so intricately woven from different stories that it's telling, Some, all of which eventually converge on O.J. Simpson's story, but, you know, which are so much bigger and, and more important and more historical. So one of the stories it's trying to tell is – the story of the relationship between the LAPD and black Los Angelinos, right? So there's the Watts riots are in there and all kinds of, and Rodney King is in there, but all kinds of other atrocities of the LAPD that I knew nothing about going back to the, I guess, mid-60s or so. Um, And that story is beautifully told. And as you say, Steve, I'm not a sports person at all. I still don't really understand the rules of football or what a down is or why you get penalty (laughs) kicks. I can't follow a football game, but I love... Steve, do you actually get penalty kicks (laughs) Is that a soccer thing? Yes. It's European football. I'm pretty sure that's a soccer thing. (laughs) There are no penalty kicks. Uh, But the fact that Ezra Edelman, the filmmaker, chooses to start, the way he organizes this is extremely interesting in terms of chronology and what he puts where in this vast narrative because he doesn't go straight chronological. He doesn't start with OJ's babyhood in San Francisco and the projects, although he gets there in the first episode, I believe. But the very first thing we see is the beginning of his football career um, and some of the stuff that we just heard in that clip. And even as a non-sports person, I was utterly transfixed by the way people talked about 
how he played and how he ran, what made him exceptional as an athlete. I thought all of that stuff was incredibly interesting and really important to feeding into the story of the kind of entitlement and adulation that led to him becoming this massive celebrity later on. For example, mm-hmm. somebody makes the very simple point, he could run sideways faster than most men could run forwards. And that's mm-hmm. just it was such a clear way of putting it for a non-football fan. And then I started to see that in the football clips that they were showing. Like, yeah, he can. He is an incredible runner. So all of those choices about how to organize the material and what order to put it in were incredibly fascinating to me, not least because I myself am working on a project that's about the life of one person, but that is also trying to tie that life into all these larger historical currents. So I was really impressed with the way he undertook that task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Julia, there's so many threads here. I mean, um, but Dana gives us a good one to start with, which is that I think a lot of people, especially younger people or non-sports fans, their overwhelming association with the name O.J. Simpson is the murder trial. You know, prior to that, he really, and he had been a celebrity, kind of a B-list, omnipresent celebrity on television for a decade, you know, after he had retired playing football. But if you're a football fan, he's arguably the second most gifted athlete to ever play the sport after Jim Brown. The irony there being Jim Brown cultivated a black consciousness both as a player and a, a later as an actor in black exploitation films. It seems to me the point, the initial point that this documentary makes so beautifully is that OJ, as a public figure, his role was almost to exonerate the conscience of, of or, or salve the conscience of white America. So it drives home not only his utter greatness, I mean, almost unparalleled greatness uh, as a player, but also the social role that right from the beginning, I mean, really as a college player, he was asked to play vis-a-vis white America. What'd you, what'd you make of this? I thought the context there was really fascinating. I mean, I, I'm know a little bit more about football than Dana and have <laughs> like, like it doesn't have penalty <laughs> kicks have enjoyed watching it and have been a fan of some wonderful New England teams on occasion um, but I'd actually never seen like a minute of footage of him playing and it's so impressive and beautiful and one thing that strikes you about the opening of the documentary is the sheer you know you could probably look at a lot of successful former players careers and find you know, a bit of footage that makes them look glorious. But there's just a lot. Like, there's just run after run after run after run where he's doing what I think is the most beautiful thing that you can see on a on a football field, which is just that, that elusive, nimble, balletic escape from the scrum and then just the, like, opening up the throttle and the run. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just gorgeous. And I really had no idea the level of his, his football achievements. I mean, I knew he had been a football player, obviously. I knew he was like in the naked gun. And then I knew about the trial. And I think the documentary does a really fascinating job laying out how he achieves and seeks and perpetuates a stature that is divorced from the racial consciousness that a lot of his fellow athletes are seizing upon at the time and strives to see himself as removed from a racial conversation rather than a part of it. And the film is very methodical and journalistic and fair-minded, I think, in laying all of that out. I mean, I, as you guys know, documentaries make me itchy because I can never tell if they're journalism or entertainment. And the journalist in me, like I get, I often get fact hives watching a documentary. Like, why are you, where, why'd you put that there? Where'd that come from? Like, it, it just raises all these like itchy sourcing questions for me. And I just really felt throughout as much of this as I got to watch, like, 
I was in very trustworthy, capable hands. And the wealth yep. of archival material that he comes up with is pretty incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's really wonderful when a documentarian solves in an interesting way that problem of what do I show you while I'm telling you all of these facts, right? And, uh, and whatever number of interns he had digging through archives to find every possible clip that illustrates exactly what it, whatever talking head on screen is talking about is quite incredible. Yeah, and yeah. there's it, for all that it seems fair-minded, it's not without spirit or pointedness. You know, there's one moment in the first episode where they talk about his career as a Hertz pitchman. So he was the face of Hertz rental car, which I also didn't know. But apparently in the 70s, if you thought Hertz, you thought O.J. Simpson. I remember those ads so well with him jumping over the velvet ropes in airports and the little old lady saying, go, O.J., go. Yeah. No, I had never seen any of that footage. So so he's, you know, this Hertz spokesman. uh, And there's a number of interviews with like the former CEO of Hertz and the ad guy. And, you know, I mean, the wealth of research on this, they like went into the corporate archives of Hertz to figure out who made these ads and what they thought of them and and what they thought about having a black pitchman at that moment in American culture and society. And there's a really chilling moment where one of the executives says, well, we didn't really think about OJ's race. He just seemed American. He, you know, and I think if you look at his features, they don't really look like black features. And they lay that statement over an image of OJ's face where you're like, that is a black American man. Like mm-hmm. what? Right, you've what got a, some serious whiteifying glasses on, guy. Well, or just like what a weird. The first couple times you hear people say that OJ had a complicated relationship with his own race, you're like, well, we're not hearing it from the guy. It's you know, Robert Lipsight, the amazing sports writer, is interviewed and he tells a, a fascinating story. But then the sheer accretion of detail and evidence that suggests that OJ and the people around him thought about his race in very weird, distanced ways mm-hmm. persuasive and fascinating. And also that he was very canny at manipulating people to think about him in precisely that way and in, mm-hmm. uh, sort of stripping himself of the racial associations. Right. I mean, Lipsight's very memorable quote from the movie is, you know, very early on he profiles O.J. He sees that O.J. is trying to live in some sense completely beyond his race. And Lipsight just says, I knew at that moment he was fucked. And he was. I mean, Julia, I love your description of football. It is the most beautiful thing in football is is when the running back breaks into the clear. It's such a quintessentially urban sport in a way. You know, baseball is a pastoral fantasy and football is much more like the gridiron. It's about a density of bodies suddenly separating and someone gets to break free of it, which I think is just something an urbanite longs to do in some way and um and he was as good at it as anybody who ever played the sport and what's funny is that that he's then stuck in these hertz ads where he's a black man running through an airport and one of the ad people says well that's a very loaded image to white america and of course hertz is selling almost exclusively at that point in the 1970s probably to white america overwhelmingly to white america and so they put they cannily put in all of these completely innocuous white figures, the most famously the old woman, who say, go, OJ, go. And so there's this calculated attempt both on his part and his corporate sponsors to deracialize this image of a black man running away. And of course, what does he become known for more than anything? Is the getting in a Bronco after having been publicly named as a suspect in his wife's murder and running and uh, and fleeing. Um, and it's just heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking that it echoes an earlier event in his life where the police come to his Brentwood mansion uh, responding to a 911 call from his wife, who's clearly being beaten. Uh, and he flees that scene 
and gets away with it because he's OJ. The whole thing is just uh, heartbreaking. And there's one detail I just want to bring up. There's so many details. Um, but one, just to pick out one in particular, um, the fact that he was uh, running back at USC as an undergraduate, the um, University of Southern California, super privileged and preponderantly white rich kid school in Southern California. And the stadium itself, I didn't know this, is the boundary between white and black LA. And there's OJ becoming a star in it and cultivating his ability to appeal innocuously to white America. The whole thing is ex- is excruciating. I'm about two and a half hours in. Uh, and um, I was only because I was at a, a beach getaway with no Wi-Fi that I didn't, like Dana, just watch every last drop of this. It's brilliant. I haven't watched far enough to know yet. And I, one thing I've seen in a number of reviews of this documentary, which inevitably compare it to the FX miniseries dramatization of the trial, which we also talked about on this show, uh, which aired on FX earlier this year, is that I think the general consensus is that this documentary offers an incredibly nuanced portrait of the racial context for OJ's career, life, the trial, the verdict, and the way that it was perceived in America, and that the gender dynamics maybe get slightly shorter shrift in this documentary, whereas gender seems to have been the kind of overriding undercurrent of the Ryan Murphy version on FX of sort of what what we didn't see about gender and Marsha Clark, who's really the star of that uh, at the time. And I, I confess I still need to watch both of these through to completion, but I'm fascinated by that thread and by having these two really rich, interesting texts. I mean, you would assume it's like when there's two movies about an asteroid and there's Armageddon and Deep Impact, like one is good and one is bad usually. <laughs> to, to make a lofty comparison. But it's really flooring to me that two entirely different groups of thinkers and artists would revisit this event 20 years later and both produce really fascinating, interesting works that both seem to have fascinating, interesting things to say about our society, which are very different from right. one another. And, and which are both extremely compelling, even aired practically one on top of mm-hmm. the other, yeah, right? Yeah, agreed. And it's so true because the OJ trial, Dana, right, it could be just a pompous cliche factory, right, a revisiting of it. And yet no one seems to have fallen into that trap. Well, I mean, I really appreciate that the trial doesn't seem to be the primary focus. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to get into it in the later episodes. But I've now gotten through, what, a good close to five hours of this documentary and the trial is just beginning. So at this point, I feel like I'm so backgrounded. You know, I know so much at this point about O.J. and Nicole's marriage and about, you know, his his youth and about his sports career and about race relations in Los Angeles at the time. And I, it, it just makes you feel so ready to go to go into that trial. All right. Well, it's called O.J. Simpson Made in America. It's pretty much universally being greeted as a kind of masterpiece. We seem to uh, unanimously agree. So check it out. Uh, we always want to know what you think of such things. So come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us. Now we live in an age of man jewelry, teeth whitening, bottle service, and David Beckham wearing a sarong. And getting it right is a good deal more complicated. Not, however, if you're Simon Doonan. Simon Doonan, of course, is the creative ambassador for Barney's and a regular contributor to Slate magazine. His new series, Getting It Right, A Field Guide to the Five Tribes of Modern Men's Fashion, is now up on Slate. Simon, welcome to the program. Bonjour. There is so much to love about this feature. It is hilarious uh, down to the last syllable. Um, let's begin with you know the basic structure of it, which is that you divide men's fashion now into five 
essentially archetypes or five tribes, as you put it. Um, why don't you describe what those five are and how you arrived at those five? Well, it's not essentially a new idea. I think men's style has always been fairly tribal. They're always sort of... Um, biker guys and then there were preppy guys and then there were jocks you know like men's style has always been quite tribal but now it's very pronounced now that fashion is kind of a global spectator sport so um, looking at the current fashion landscape I divided it up into five the schlub is that you Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, nothing wrong with being a schlub. I actually celebrate the schlubs. Um, the dedicated follower of Satin, which is probably moi. Can we describe your outfit? Can we pause briefly? Yes. I'd should I do to. it or should you do it? I think you should do it. Um, I'm wearing a Liberty shirt, which is buttoned down and very sort of mid-60s. And then one of these new souvenir jackets. This one isn't actually that near, new, which is a blouson type jacket, which has been embroidered. And it, it's called a souvenir jacket. It's a big trend this season. And it goes back to the 1950s when American soldiers went to their Far East with their bomber jackets, and they would get them embroidered while they were in Japan and Korea and various places. Um, and then I'm wearing these jeans that are by a company called Naked and Famous, which on a 64-year-old probably is a bit de trop. <laughs> and then uh, my sneakers are Glamrock, Saint Laurent, um, last season, Silver Stars, and um, very glam rock. So I'm basically dressed like a psychedelic toddler. <laughs> okay, wait. There's a couple. There's a couple key factors that you would have been left out of this if you don't can't immediately conjure an image when the words liberty are said. So liberty print shirt. M- meaning covered in flowers. And actually, this Liberty print also has little birds dotted amongst it. This print is actually about 100 years old because they were part of the arts and crafts movement. And this print is called The Strawberry Thief. It's gorgeous. I'm obsessed with Liberty everything. And yeah, well, Liberty is, is incredible. And it had a big revival in the mid-60s because people got back into the Art Nouveau because it was like psychedelia and so, yeah. Uh, also, the jacket, the blouson jacket he's describing has two silver tigers with ferocious eyebrows embroidered where either breast pocket would be. And then the sneakers he describes are silver with blue foil stars and a red heel cap. And there's also some striped socks that you've let, left out. Oh, yeah. Forgot about those. Yeah. Well observed. But I feel like we need to finish breaking down the types. Yes, so of course. You, so we've just so established this is that Steve is a schlub. Simon so, is a satin. Dedicated follower of satin. So that means? Um, that means um, theatricality, um, like satin, the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards. Like um, it's a very playful, very sort of. I'm not employable way to dress. <laughs> and so now that I'm in sort of the, the sunset of my career, I, I feel because during the 80s, we had to wear very conservative suits to Barney's. So for me to be able to dress like this to go to work now is fun and and revolutionary and great. So I'm digging it. And the other tribes, we should name those. Um, A very big tribe at the moment is the Arty Ninja. And the Arty Ninja is sort of like rap stars love the Arty Ninja. It's um, a black hoodie, some very wide black shorts that are like culottes. Um, Designers are public school, hood by air. Um, It's sort of 
very Japanese looking as well. So it sort of comes from designers like Comme des Garçons, Yoji Yamamoto, and it's very big. Like um, a lot of the basketball stars that we've seen pictures of them coming and going for the the playoffs, they adopt this style. And what do we got? We've got the RT Ninja, dedicated follower of Saturn. Um, the, the perverse schlub. prepster. Oh, the perverse prepster. The perverse prepster is hugely popular with millennials because the perverse prepster is sort of a very um, extreme version of preppy style where you have don't have neat hair. You have insanely neat hair. <laughs> and you have a little gray Mr. Rogers cardigan and, a, and an Oxford shirt and a tie. And um, it's a sort of Tom Brown, the American designer, he kind of put this style on the map. Um, the perverse prepster is very popular because unlike the dedicated follower of Saturn, the perverse prepster exudes competence. You sort of look like Ross Perot from a distance. It seems like you would... You would be just incredibly nerdy and dedicated. But then there's always a flourish which is idiosyncratic, like a very strange shaved haircut or maybe your pants are finished like halfway up your calf. So it's ultra preppy style with some very perverse twist that says, I'm very nerdy and dedicated to my job, but I'm also a person with ideas and creativity. So a lot of people who were into this norm core trend... Is this getting very no, labyrinthine and complicated? No, we've talked about normcore, so we're up on The normcore trend, which was very dominant the last couple of years, which was this bizarrely extreme anonymity. Nothing had any logos on it. Everything was very, very plain and anonymous. People are migrating out of that into the perverse prepster because for millennials – the norm core thing doesn't work that well because like they suddenly realized I think being anonymous at work was just not so great unless you were Mark Zuckerberg and then you could be as norm core as you wanted, you know, because you owned the joint. Okay, and then there the final type is the statham. Tell us about the statham. The statham is a sort of tough look where you kind of look like a hired assassin. You have usually a shaved head, um, a bell staff kind of motocross jacket, something very super butch. And, um, you know, jeans that look like they've been sandpapered, some kind of work boot. And um, <laughs> it's extremely hyper-masculine, hyper-butch. Anybody who's seen Jason Statham's movies will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, obviously, the style is very popular because it's an easy way of looking masculine and stylish. And no one asks too many questions because you kind of look intimidating. <laughs> Paradoxically, it's extremely popular with hairdressers. <laughs> both straight and gay. Okay, Steve, so you claim to be a schlub, but I I would have value to be a perverse prepster. I feel like you might have to send us photographic evidence so that Simon can uh, diagnose you at the conclusion <laughs> of this discussion. Well, there, um, are, there obviously have to be cross-category members, right? People that, that successfully meld. But don't let Steve off the hook. Unsuccessfully <laughs> meld two of these styles. Just close your eyes and imagine a pair of Warby Parkers perched above a dad bod, and that's... All I got on this end. I mean, the idea that I'm going to send you a photograph. Are you saying that you're wearing nothing but Warby's and a smile right now, Steve? <laughs> Are you? Is this when you? Is this why you record from Ghent? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm clothed, but I mean, according to virtually no category. I mean, I suppose I'm a prepster minus the perversity plus a tincture of the schlub, or perhaps more than a tincture of the schlub. I mean, I just 
you know, I, I clearly what I long for when it comes to clothes is a cloak of invisibility. But Simon, that's not one of your options. No. And um, I feel so bad for um, men like you because <laughs> you go around with this idea that you want a cloak of invisibility. And um, so you're you're really a fashion dad. Have you seen that wonderful website? I I am that wonderful website, Simon. I don't I don't need to see it. Have you seen Fashion Dad? It's a wonderful Instagram feed of um, fashion dads, and it really is great. And I was actually going to call one of the tribes Fashion Dads, but you know I felt like I was stealing their thunder because they've done such a great job of showing men like yourself live their <laughs> lives as if the sword of Damocles is hanging over their comb over. You know, like there's something terrible is going to happen. Like, I can't tell you the number of times I step out of the elevator at work and some guy says to me, oh, nice jacket. I wish I could get away with that. Like, they literally think something terrible is going to happen if they wear something even remotely remarkable. You know, so they're like yourself. They li- they cower in a basement in their fashion dad outfit thinking that if they – if they want it up a bit, something awful would happen. Like I, people like you, I want to dress you up like Liberace and just propel you out into the street, <laughs> so you can see that no one would care. Can we do a segment at Barney's where you dress Steve? Oh yes. I mean, do we have to go to Barney? I'd rather go to the Halloween costume shop on my block because I think public humiliation would be very therapeutic because it, it wouldn't happen. Like uh, I. I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where where to even begin? I mean, I'm, I mean, first of all, this public humiliation hasn't been good for me at all. So I'm not sure why, you know, proceeding to a Halloween store to complete it would be uh would be healthy for anybody. But um, all right, I'm going to describe to you what I would wear on a typical day that I'd like to be cloaked in invisibility, but I'm forced by convention to wear um, visible clothes: uh, a button-up, long-sleeve Stephen Allen shirt, a pair of jeans that I've forgotten the source of but is not Levi Strauss but could be maybe maybe even rag and bone though probably not but like rag and bone minus maybe Uniqlo maybe Uniqlo jeans and a pair of black Nike jogging shoes done this is um cloak of invisibility part two I mean really that's your, that's your when you're not having a cloak of invisibility, or is that the cloak of invisibility? <laughs> I, I hope it operates as a cloak of invisibility. Oh, it does. Sorry. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Harry Potter could have worn that to Hogsmeade, and nobody would have sorted him out of the crowd. But Simon, I have a question about female typologies of dress. I mean, obviously, we're sort of the peacocks of the species in terms of culturally how we're allowed to dress, right, compared to most men. But is it impossible to establish a typology of, of female dress? No. In fact, um, in my book, Eccentric Glamour, that's the basis of that book. Women are divisible into, ready, gypsies, which is basically a bohemian style, you know, counterculture based around that. Socialites, which is not derogatory. It means just basically a turned out, manicured kind of glamour. Blow out, blow out. They went to dry blow, bar. Yeah, they went to dry bar. They've got a designer handbag. They're turned out. They've got collections of shoes, blah, 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 um, which is actually a majority of women. And then there are what I call the existentialists, which are like Tilda Swinton, Daphne Guinness, like crusaders for um, rabid individuality. So with women, it's those three 
You're Only right. three? That seems so reductive. Yeah, I would think that we would have a, a huger array than men. Oh, calm down, girls. Here's <laughs> the thing is, with women, you're much likely, someone like Kate Moss does all three. And you probably do two, at least, of those. So women do <laughs> flip two? flop around. But believe me, Steve is never going to go from schlub to, you're, are you, darling? Darling is not. but time and i will say i i'm someone who i don't then impose that invisibility judgmentally on anybody else i i admire beyond admire the way you um look and carry yourself um especially vis-a-vis your clothes and i have friends who dress male friends who dress beautifully and i just wonder how they do it like i wish i could somehow and it's not even the funny thing is it's not even really a question of I, I couldn't dress like you. I couldn't dress like Keith Richards. That would be preposterous. I mean, I'd, I'd make an ass of myself. Um, but um, I do have friends who dress kind of somewhere. It, they dress anonymously enough that you wouldn't notice it until you noticed it. And then you realize that they've taken great care um, and have bought beautiful clothes that really complement the way they look. I wish I could do that, but I just can't. I find men's fat. I mean, I think it's interesting that you could feel you can divide both camps into tribes, male and female. But I... I will confess here that I find men's fashion totally befuddling. And anytime I'm asked for advice about or shopping help with men's fashion, all any aesthetic sense I have totally abandons me because my approach to dressing myself or giving my sister advice is like this um, like rainbow magpie approach of like, ooh, bright and pretty, interesting print, cool shape. Like I want – Things that are like bold and fascinating and fun and have interesting cuts and it's like. Well, you learned something very important there, darling. Do you want to know what it is? Oh dear, what? Never give and never ask for advice. <laughs> like, and clothing should be self-expression. So if you're, um, if you're sort of an overweight guy in a Metallica t-shirt with a mullet, I'm completely fine with that. I think that's great. If it. Really, is that who that guy is? Totally. Like, I have no problem with that. So it should be about self-expression, don't you think? Like, Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I have no opinions about how men should dress either. But, I, but people do sometimes want advice. They, they say, oh, what about this? They don't. What about that? <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They say they do, but they really don't. Like, people ask me for advice all the time, and I have a repertoire of anarchic things that I give them as advice. And um, because I basically don't understand why they're asking. So I usually say, go home and take all your work clothes and throw them away and just wear party clothes. (laughs) Or buy a blue wig from a wig shop. It's like Zen Koan fashion advice. It just sort of takes you to a different place. Yes, a knee grazing skirt seems like it would be appropriate for this kind of function. Like, oh yeah, no, the most most boring is ten essential items to have in your closet, right? Yeah, I get rid of all those. Yeah, I try not to use that word, the e word. Yeah, essential or advice, no vowels. I mean, okay, but just to circle back to the point I was trying to make is simply that (laughs) the gradations in men's fashion, if you're not a follower of satin, are so much more subtle that I feel like I'm I'm like one of Steve's uh, much derided Robert Parker wine critics where my taste in women's fashion has like turned the dials on my eyes to where I can only see things that are super bold and exuberant and bright. And then whenever I'm asked to say to pick up something in a men's store like oh what about this inevitably 
all men I, I'm ever in stores with, including gay ones, are like, that is so bold and like way too over the top and too much. And I like, I can't, it's like I need to turn down the sensitivity on my eyes to have any useful advice. But Fine. I guess I should just stop having advice whatsoever. Like the, the nuances and gradations of men's style are virtually incomprehensible. That's why you are really are reliant on going to these archetypes, whether it's jock or nerd or um, Statham or follower of Saturn. To, I think it actually does help people navigate um, through what is essentially an endless landscape of nuance and... Um, which is indecipherable. That's why concrete advice is so hard, and I tend to go for the hyperbolic. (laughs) Steve, can I ask you an existential question about being a man in America today? Always. Do you feel more or less anxious about what you wear than you did 20 or 30 years ago? And to the degree that you feel more or less anxious, do you attribute it to the changing times or your changing age and station? I want to declare for the record that I feel almost no anxiety about what I wear um, whatsoever. I mean, there's plenty of sort of anonymous, you know, all cotton, um, schlubware out there, you know, uh, the only thing that I would say, I mean, to, look, to, uh, th- that question is inseparable from the question of what an awkward git I was 20, 25 years ago <laughs> and how I've moved towards a salutary indifference, you know, over time. And you're a mellow git now. To, to both myself and others. <laughs> but, um, yes, exactly. And, um, but uh, one thing I I really have noticed is that the trick that the fashion world now plays upon those of us who crave anonymity, it's so clever and consumerist and postmodern, it really turns us into little rats in a maze. Because no sooner does one discover filsonware, you know, filson, and one thinks uh, this is uncomplicatedly masculine, unselfconscious, kind of almost workwear. Then um, and I, you know, Simon and I now live up in the boonies, and people have been wearing the farmers up here have literally been wearing Filson for a hundred years. Um, then you go into the city and see the Filson store on Crosby Street, and you realize you've been utterly fucking foiled. That the instant something Woolrich or any of these things achieves a kind of apex anonymity, it gets seized upon by marketers or hipsters and turned into something self-conscious, and the the cloak is snatched away. A hundred percent. And I, I, this is going to send you flying through a plate glass window. I own a, a Filson safari jacket that's about oh. 20 years old because um, I thought it had, for me, it had some kind of almost looked like a Saint Laurent 1970s safari jacket. So I thought that's so hilarious. And you wear it with a cravat and it's like a pastiche <laughs> of sort of David Niven kind of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I get where you're saying like, in other words, heritage meritage. You know, it's exactly. Like... <laughs> yeah, um, Simon, I I dig the idea bottomlessly of the two of us going to a, a series of men's shops with a recording device accompanying us, and uh, doing the Slate Plus segment to end all Slate Plus segments. You know, you'd be dealing with a full-on dipshit, so it'd be quite a challenge for you. But I'd I'd be curious to see what you make of me. Um, well, I think the fun thing to do would be to repackage you um, and then see, <laughs> then take you out and flaunt you and see how people reacted and, and see how you felt to how they reacted. Because you never know. People have done really huge style vault fuss in their life, in their later life. Um, you know, they've often 
in lieu of midlife crisis, sometimes people will just start dressing super groovy. How old are you? Uh, I am 52 years old. Okay. Ready. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Makeover montage. (laughs) I like it. I think we got to do this. We got to have a Slate Plus where we repackage Steve as an arty ninja and send him out into the world. Yeah, because arty ninja was the one that he seemed to have some little frisson of... Excitement about. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, the feature is wonderful. It's screamingly funny. It's wonderful. It's very Simon Doonan. It's called Getting It Right, a Field Guide to the Five Tribes of Modern Men's Fashion. Simon, it's always terrific when we have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. Well, Dana Stevens was away from the show for about seven weeks, um, off on a book leave, during which time, Dana, you did the single most perverse thing imaginable, which is you continued listening to the show. <laughs> or rather started, since I don't listen when I'm on it. Oh, of course. And and you took notes while doing it. And you have um, a bunch of uh, issues to raise with us, apparently. So what what's buzzing in your bonnet right now about the Slate Culture Gap Fest in your absence? Well, I mean, let's put it this way. I didn't set out to listen to all the shows and take notes, but I just started to realize that it was a nice thing to put in my podcast lineup and that at least when I'm not on it, we seem to manage to put together a pretty good podcast. So that made me feel good about doing the show. Um, But of course, as I was walking along, usually walking the dog, listening to you guys with whoever, whoever your guests were in my ears, I would find myself talking back, sometimes yelling back and ranting back at, at something and wishing that I could weigh in on whatever the topic was. So I tried to gather some of these together and I thought maybe for a kind of grand scale esprit d'escalier segment, we could go through some of my notes and we could revisit some of the topics that y'all talked about without me. Are Dana, you Dana, I think this is a great idea, but isn't it like your esprit, my escalier? <laughs> yeah, no, it's basically like Dana gets to be seven weeks smarter than us about whatever the hell it was. Exactly. This oh is like God. a setup for us to sound like morons, but we're good at that so so, I yeah, promise I, did, I didn't, yeah, I didn't research Proceed. these things intensely. In fact, much of the time I might not even know the article or the thing that you were talking about. But I tried to get up to speed on it for this segment so that I could at least say what my either objection or question or you know point of enthusiastic agreement would have been. Do you want to hear what they are and you can pick which ones you want to talk yeah, about Yeah, yeah. Give us, give us the spinning wheel of potential topics uh, upon which to be told we were woefully wrong <laughs> <laughs> and we'll decide. <laughs> Some of them it is not a question of woefully wrong as much as, oh, I just wish they had mentioned this or, you know, what would they think about that? Some sort of some sort of embroidery on what you were saying. So here are this, the topics that I have notes on, and you can tell me which you're interested in revisiting. One is Lemonade, Beyonce's Lemonade, which I was actually on that show, but not in that segment. That was the week that we talked about Prince as well. So I have some stuff to say about Lemonade. I could comment on uh, you and Laura Miller's conversation about adverbs and other words that clutter up writing, and that's mm-hmm. that kind of... Um, mm-hmm you know, how to write segment, which I thought was fascinating. Then this was the Slate Plus segment, I believe, that you did with with Wesley Morris. But the the thing about breaking up with cable, I have some straight up questions for you guys, because I'm right in the midst right now of trying to figure out how just how to make Time Warner Cable miserable and deprive them of any money or attention from me ever again. And yet I seem to talk about on a national podcast, abusive relationship with them. and, oh, yeah, another another plus segment that was quite interesting is what accents are we hiding? I liked hearing about Dan Coyce's long-gone Milwaukee accent and could talk about that. I think Adverbs. we do all four. Let's do yeah. a lightning round. Okay. I'm curious. I, I'm curious to start with Lemonade because – I will confess, I went to the Beyonce show in New York last week at City Field. And at the show, I thought, well, first of all, I briefly had a spare ticket and was thinking of inviting you. And then someone snatched it. And then I but but before they snatched it, I was like, oh, right. 
Dana loathes Beyonce and everything she stands for. Oh, what? And, I never said any such thing. And then I was like, but I bet she would still be interested in coming. Um, and anyway. I challenge you to find any place where I have said I loathe Beyonce and everything she stands for. In like, fact, every it's segment Steve we've... who stood up for that more than I. Uh, I feel like every segment we. You think she? You when we talked about formation, you critiqued her for being fundamentally an espouser of herself beyond all other potential political philosophies and signifiers. And right. You have been a persistent critic of that uh, self-involved and somewhat solipsistic aspect All right, you nailed me, JT. You know me too well. You're right. This was my objection to Lemonade, which I agree is beautifully produced. I've never, I don't think, said anything negative about Beyonce as a performer. I think she's really talented, especially dancer. I love to see her dance. Her music isn't really my kind of music, but she unquestionably delivers it like nobody's business. And so I see why she's a superstar. But the problem that I have with Lemonade is sort of identical to the one with Formation, which I guess is part of the whole the whole same album and tour, right? Which is that, and you guys touched on this a little bit in your conversation with Jody and June about about Lemonade, but to me it was it was my primary reaction to Lemonade, which is just that I fundamentally could not identify with the the marital trauma being reenacted in front of wind machines in a designer gown by this beautiful woman who is constantly being framed and lit and shot to sort of look perfect and 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 flawless, right? That's the big word associated with Beyonce and to project this kind of um forceful flawness flawlessness onto the world. And uh and the fakest part of all to me seemed to be, and I think Jody did touch on this, the uh, the arc, the relationship arc that's traced over the course of that visual album where you see her kind of reconciling with Jay-Z at the end, and it's all under the umbrella of his company that is being released. There was just there was a fundamental phoniness to the entire existence of that project that kept me from at all being able to get behind the sort of, you know, you go sentiment behind her car window smashing and, and general parading glamorously about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And also, by the way, like, I just don't think it's a radical thought to always be on high alert for capitalism's ability to commodify anything and everything, right? I mean, you don't even have to be a left winger to believe that this is one of the tendencies of the system we live within and under, right? And it's going to commodify everything. It's going to commodify race. It's going to commodify trauma. It's going to commodify dissent. It's going to, it, it's going to do that. We know it's going to do that. And the idea that you should look at this uncritically for reasons of, of identity politics to me is just, is, is revolting. It's a way of being, like, it's a way of having a part of your own critical apparatus disabled ahead of time, which seems to me completely unfair by the rules of the game. Yeah, I mean, all right. As someone who's both moved by Beyonce and skeptical of Beyonce, I will speak up on behalf of the album now that I've like lived with it in my earbuds for another um, six weeks or whatever and seen the seen the formation tour. Um, and I and I'll just say I, I, I do think I mean, we did talk about this in our segment the 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 calculated rawness of Lemonade is weird, and it fundamentally still falls on the performative Tracy flick, I'm hitting all my beats and landing on all my marks, Beyonce. It's not actually raw. It is, in fact, like the greatest, the notion that you could release that album and have two marketing moments like the, the release of the Formation video, the Super Bowl halftime show that you like co-opted from poor old Coldplay, or was it Radiohead? Sorry, trolling, <laughs> sorry. Um, and... Uh, and then subsequently be like, oh, we're going to launch this thing called Lemonade on HBO. What is it? And then in a half hour special, you basically admit publicly that your husband cheated on you and that you're still together. And by the way, you're, you know, you've got this tour coming up. I mean, 
it's like a triumph of marketing. It's so great. They should study it in business school. It's incredible what she's done as a capitalist, basically, uh, and in commodifying her pain, which seems real and seems raw and does come through in the performances, but then also is dulled by its commodification. I was in City Field watching Beyonce sing and dance the night that Hillary Clinton clinched the nomination. And it was weirdly moving to be there and to be there with so many women who think she's amazing that night. And she opened with the kind of like female power anthem stuff and then took long wandering detours into like love jams and booty jams and jealousy jams and other types of things. But she opened with kind of the girl power set and the feeling of being in this massive stadium with more than 40,000 people, mostly women, shouting, sorry, I ain't sorry, sorry, I ain't sorry, the moment that we get our first female presidential nominee, like was undeniably moving. Like I just felt verklempt and excited. And like it does say something about pop culture that this is the pop idol we have right now. I mean, lest I go down as a Beyonce hater, let me just say that if you had offered me that ticket before someone could snap it up and I hadn't had some other commitment that night, which I think I didn't, I would have run to that concert. Not necessarily even because I'll go on to become a huge fan, but because I know that she's this, you know, performative force and I would want to see that in action. All right. Next time she comes to town, Dana, we'll go together. Yes. Okay. Hit us with your adverb thoughts. Uh, Okay. Adverbs. Yes. So the Christian Lawrence and Peace on Adverbs. Mm, I skimmed it. It was interesting. I don't necessarily agree with this argument, but it was elegantly presented. But what, what interested me about hearing that conversation was just hearing about you, Laura, and Steve talking about these writing ticks that you have or moments in your writing that you don't discover until you start to be edited or edit yourself. And uh, especially, Steve, to hear you talking about the uh, the experience of coming face-to-face with your own ineradicable stupidity as a, as a writer as soon as you sit down to a big project right as I was in the middle of doing that, right? So – in fact, I think it was only a day or two after listening to your conversation about adverbs, semicolons, dashes, adjectives, what is the junk that we should take out of our writing that the editor, the book editor, the guy I'm working with on on this Buster Keaton book, wrote me back about some pages I had sent him, which he really liked. But one of his notes was, oh, you use parentheses a lot. Maybe you should think about how you use parentheses. And then I immediately started to choke and realized that all of my writing was just full of these like nettle weeds of of parentheses (laughs) that sprung up everywhere. And that I was using them as security blankets, nettle security blankets, I guess. What an uncomfortable. (laughs) I I just, I couldn't peel them away. Basically, I couldn't figure out what to do about my my parentheses problem. And it had never been diagnosed before. But um, so I, I just, I like talking about punctuation and grammar. And I wanted to open that back up with you guys. Before your parentheses infestation was pointed out to you, what would you have answered as sort of like the thing that you always check for before you send the thing oh, in or the yeah. the kind of the tick that you were previously aware of that kind so of drove you things, crazy? So many things. I mean, I think in relation to slate writing, I would say long windups. That was the thing that it took me a long time to take out of my writing. And to this day, I'll often go over a review when I'm done and say, can I remove the whole lead entirely? You know, or is there just one sentence from it that I can salvage that's really all I need? Because coming from academia, I think I was used to this kind of warm up where you establish your authority to say the thing that you're about to say. Whereas in journalism, you just, I think, especially after you've been writing a column somewhere for a while, just assume that authority and jump in. So that's one is long wind up leads. 
Uh, another thing that I tend to do too much of, although I do think that this is a wonderful, elegant piece of punctuation when well used, is the semicolon. And so, mm-hmm. Steve, I was yeah, a little chagrined when I heard you say semicolons be gone because, you know, I, I really don't think I could write without semicolons. I mean, parentheses, I can start to strip away. But uh, but semicolons do something that no other piece of punctuation does and, and relate to parts of a sentence in a, in a particular mm-hmm. way. You can be really funny with a semicolon or you can you can make that second sentence if it's short kind of like land like a little a little skewer if you if you employ it right. But you've got to be you know careful right because they 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 do suffer from overuse I think. Oh they definitely do and so do dashes yeah. and parentheses and they're always all of those in a way are ways of prevaricating as a writer and saying well my thought's not quite done yet here's one more nuance but what about on the other hand and I feel like sometimes I should have a, just a big you know cork board above my desk that says sometimes the sentence is just over <laughs> you know? yeah sometimes yeah. you just put a period and move on. <laughs> all right we've got two more do you want a lightning ro- lightning bolt through these? Hell yeah. Lightning. Yeah. Uh, okay, so breaking up with cable, which you talked about with Wesley Morris as a Slate Plus segment. I just I would have thrown in had I been here that I'm trying, trying, trying to get rid of my Time Warner cable. But the fact is, for various reasons, mainly having to do with this podcast and just needing, like you, Julia, to have sort of access to all the TV I can get all the time in case I need it. Right? I've I've hung on to this big, expensive, irritating cable package with this company that just oh god, it's just like the Donald Trump of cable companies. It's horrible. They'll just raise your rates for no reason behind your back. And lie about doing it and then say they lower them and don't lower them and it's just awful and the service is bad everything's bad but Fios has now reached our neighborhood I guess the cables couldn't you know make it there yet until this year but it's now there but they appear to have some sort of terrible labor problem in their company where they're on strike and uh, so we tried to switch Resolved. over to them yeah the strike just ended oh did it well so then maybe yep. maybe this will fix it so maybe we'll just ask our listeners whether it's worth it in that case to get fios because there was something strange about trying to make that change the company was all excited they signed us up they shipped us a bunch of equipment that they were going to install and then we just learned that they were in this labor dispute turnaround and these boxes of wires were just sitting on the floor of our living room and it just sort of seemed like Maybe that was not a good company to get into a relationship with either. I mean, I don't think you should switch to Fios because of its benign labor practices and overall un-Donald Trumpness. It's fundamentally also one of – it's an oligopolistic uh, – oh, I'm not looking at it as a provider, endeavor. Provider of services. <laughs> um, but I will say as someone who's had both Time Warner and Fios at another apartment because my apartment also just got access to Fios, that Fios – the internet service did seem faster, and there was a great satisfaction in the like FU to Time Warner That's that you were I able want, to administer. more than anything else. I can't wait for that FU. I don't know about you know the the actual cord cutting thing of like, do you pay a company to give you access to television programs in some kind of box, or do you just get a really fast internet connection and like live a life of like you know Oliver Twist catching streams here and there as you can get them? That's sort of a separate question. But FiOS. Fios is good. Well, between my belief, I mean, I think I'm just of the generation that I don't feel like I'm watching a movie at home unless I am plonked on a couch in front of a screen. I can't really do the watching on a small screen thing and feel like I'm I'm having a legitimate experience. So in that sense, I think I probably need some form of, of actual cable TV. But it seems like most people that are hanging on to cable are hanging on to it for very few reasons, for HBO, 
right, for um, ESPN, if you're a sports person. And then one that you guys didn't mention, but that for me is really key, is, is TCM, Turner Classic Movies. I mean, I don't even watch it that much, but I feel like it needs to be there. It's like a utility in your house that needs to be there in case you just have to turn on the TV and see an old black and white movie with Paul Muni <laughs> desperately at 2 a.m. And, uh, and I can't seem to find any way to get TCM other than through a cable company. So if anybody knows how I can catch and sneak me some TCM viewing, maybe that would solve my problem. Yeah, I don't know if they've invented TCM Go yet, but maybe someday. Oh, and then the final one was it was a recent uh, plus that you did with Dan Coyce about what accents you have and what you've done to get rid of them. And I was interested to talk about that just because I'm from Texas and have never had a Texas accent. And I think one of the first things that people almost always say to me when they hear I'm from Texas is, but you don't have a Texas accent. And I don't think I ever did. I don't think I worked to get rid of it or, or anything like that. And that is probably because I was a military transplant and neither of my parents are from there. I have no roots there. Uh, still, though, if Dan Coyce is correct and you acquire your, your accent from your peers in school and not from your family, I should, I suppose, have grown up with a Texas accent and, and never got one. Um, although I am told that when I say, well, I do say y'all effortlessly and sort of seems like a natural part of conversation. And I'm told when I say certain words, like apparently honey, <laughs> I sound like I have a Texas accent. Wait, say the word honey. Honey. I don't know. I don't hear it. I don't hear it. (laughs) Maybe is it that I call people honey, but I don't really call people honey. You never called me honey. (laughs) I have a friend who used to crack up whenever I said honey and claim that I suddenly sounded like, you know, I was calling in the kids from the porch for biscuits or something. I I love those tell words. There's a woman in my husband's family who's originally French, but whose English is just impeccably American sounding like you would never ever know that she's from France, except with words that end in I-U-M. So she, when, when, uh, when she's talking about clothing sizes, she says, oh, a medium. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the one word, <laughs> medium. And there's, um, and, and premium, like, th- there's something about that specific syllable. It's the only mm. tell. So I'm going to keep my ear to your honey. <laughs> All right, well, Dana, I thought that was going to be the, like, you know, early summer phoned in go nowhere segment to end all such segments but uh no that was good that was solid stuff i'd listen to this show um all right maybe we can even retain this as a as a recurring you know feature on the show is uh, you know kind of this ombudsman thing that people do when they're off doing other projects and then not actually on mic um all right that was excellent let's let's move along now is the moment in our program where we endorse dan nah what do you have Okay, so my endorsement this week uh, is going to be a sad one, but I hope also in some way a joyous one. So like everyone this week, I think I've been unable to stop thinking about, reading about, crying about the massacre in Orlando. And uh, and there were so many things being said and sung and talked about in the, in the few days after that that were extremely moving at the Tony Awards, for one thing, which is not a show that I usually watch or follow, but which was absolutely incredible this year, I think, and, and in many ways because of the sense of solidarity with what had just happened the night before. Um, but one thing I came across on, on Twitter that I, is that I was sent to a, a website called New York School Poets that quoted a Frank O'Hara poem about dancing at a gay bar. And uh, it's just such a wonderful celebration of the experience of dancing at a gay bar that I thought I would read it for my endorsement. And uh, it's a little bit of a visual poem because it's got some uh, initials and things in it. So there might be some moments where I have to stop to explain for a bit. But this is a poem that was never published during Frank O'Hara's lifetime because it was too explicit in its content and was only published after he died. And it's essentially about him hanging out with his buddies at a straight bar and then deciding to all go dance at a gay bar. It's called At the Old Place, which was the name of the gay bar they were going to. At the Old Place. 
Joe is restless, and so am I, so restless. Buttons, buddy, lips, frame, L-G-T-T-H-O-P, which stands for Let's Go to the Old Place. Across the bar, yes, I cry, for dancing's my sole delight. Feet, feet, come on. Through the streets we skip like swallows. Howard malingers, come on, Howard. Ashes malingers, come on, J.A. Dick malingers, come on, Dick. Alvin darts ahead. Wait up, Alvin. Jack, Earl, and someone don't come. Down the dark stairs drifts the steaming cha-cha-cha. Through the urine and smoke we charge to the floor. Wrapped in Ash's arms I glide. It's heaven. Button Lindy's with me. It's heaven. Joe's two steps, too, are incredible. And then a fast rumbo with Alvin like skipping on toothpicks. (laughs) And the interminable intermissions, we have them. Jack, Earl, and someone drift guiltily in. I knew they were gay the minute I laid eyes on them, screams John. How ashamed they are of us, we hope. <laughs> so that's Frank O'Hara's At the Old Place. Uh, that's, yeah. Wonderful. Um, Julia, what do you have? Nothing so beautifully pertinent. Um, and I actually would just echo Dana's endorsement of this year's Tonys, which I also never, ever watch. And obviously this year, because it's the year of the Hamilton accolades, there would have been more interest in it anyway. But I did think that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's initial response to winning Best Book of a Musical, I think, was the first speech he gave, which was a sonnet about his wife and about the tragedy and about Hamilton and what it all says about America was really moving and is worth going to see. Oh, that sonnet is mind-blowing. And just in general, I mean, it just made me feel like the Tonys put the Oscars to shame in terms of the sense of community that they foster and the sense of, of, of real joy and appreciation that's happening on stage. Yeah, um, they, were, they were weirdly the thing you wanted to watch that night, even if it seemed a little bit odd. Um, but I instead have a very pragmatic endorsement that is practical and seasonally appropriate. Uh, it's for a thermos. If you are like me, you drink iced coffee year-round, but most people are not like me. So if it is just coming into iced coffee or iced latte season for you and you are looking for a travel mug, look no further. I would like to endorse a thermos by the Japanese brand Zojirushi. Uh, it has this sort of beautiful metallic finish. It has a double wall construction like a classic thermos, except that it's super lightweight and it has a really nice locking clasp and a drinking spout and it all disassembles so you can actually clean it, which is the thing that always makes me a little bit squiffy about coffee cups is when they're like all dark and acrid smelling in there and they never seem like they quite get clean. This one has like a beautiful, bright, shiny metallic interior so you can like eyeball it and make sure it's as clean as you'd like. Um, And they come in these lovely metallic hues. You can get them on Amazon. The best thing about them is they keep your stuff so cold. When I make an ice latte and forget to finish it, which happens seldom, and then stow it in a bag and bring it home and forget to clean it out, which happens often, uh, and then I finally clean it out the next morning, I can still hear the ice like clinking in it 24, 36 hours later. It really, really works and is aesthetically pleasing and useful. So Zoji Rushi is the brand. They make 12-ounce and 16-ounce sizes. You can get them on Amazon. Is that the container that you made me a delicious iced coffee in at your house and I promptly forgot it and left it at your house? Probably. Oh, it, it makes it, me all the angry. It either looked like this or if it didn't look like this, that's what it was. All right. Well, um, in the spirit of nothing being an appropriate thing to do or say in the aftermath of Orlando, nonetheless, um, uh, I will endorse a writer named Albert O. Hirschman, who I may have mentioned before on the podcast. I mean, it's possible years ago I endorsed a book of his called 
the passions and the interests. But anyway, here we go again. Um, I'm rediscovering Hirschman now. He was a Jewish emigre to the United States who was a trained as an economist, did a lot of early work developing, for example, the Marshall Plan and later in Latin America doing developmental work. Uh, so he's extremely hands-on. And this gave Hirschman a profoundly untheoretical disposition towards the world. He didn't think that you could come up with governing universal abstractions, you know, that in some, you know, pro Crustian way you apply to all of human reality, he nonetheless had a powerfully intellectual and abstract mind. And so when he did write theoretically, he always wrote with this sense of intelligent ambivalence and agnosticism about solutions, you know, a single solution fitting all of humanity. And to give you some sense of you know, how accessible in a way Hirschman is. Malcolm Gladwell's written about him. I mean, he's not simply a preoccupation of weirdo eggheads like me. I mean, he it is Hirschman, he wrote so beautifully and so lucidly, there's no one who wouldn't be interested in, in um, reading his work. There's a reader of uh, selected works of his. It's just eminently worth getting. Couldn't recommend it more highly. Anyway, all right. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Oh, you fancy, huh? Oh, you fancy, huh?